0: So there's this computer game called RimWorld, which is a survival simulator, mm-hmm. which is, you know, exactly what we need at these times, obviously. Uh, it's like, games is real life. And one of the frequent events is outdoor radiation that prevents you from going outside and in, in, in which your little people start to go rapidly mad. <laughs> and so I've realized that, as in the game, the solution to our dilemmas is, in fact, to, to simply build a covered shelter from our homes to the grocery store so that we can head outside safely. Ah. And I don't see why the government hasn't adopted this. Gamers
1: will inherit the earth.
0: Uh, exactly, exactly. Sadly, it, it it does actually have plague models too, though it doesn't infect between your people, which on the grounds, I guess, that that would just be too irritating.
1: <laughs> oh God. So our current reality has exceeded the imaginations of uh, game developers. Our current, reality
0: is, is, our current reality is worse and more irritating. Than the situation of my little men stuck on a faraway alien planet going mad and shooting each other.
1: Hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's daily podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy.
0: And I'm James Palmer, a senior editor at Foreign Policy.
1: On today's episode, we're going to be talking about high risk groups, people who may be more exposed to contracting the coronavirus and those whose health may be most at risk if they do get it. Later on, we'll speak with Camille Mackler, an immigration attorney and fellow at the Truman National Security Project. But first this. The world is changing in ways that affect your life and your business. Do you have the intelligence you need? Now FP is offering Insider. Insider. With a new FP Insider subscription, you will get all of FP's content plus exclusive access to data-driven intelligence, power maps that distill complex issues, in-depth special reports, and conference calls on the biggest stories and trends. Get global insight you can bank on. Subscribe to FP Insider today at foreignpolicy.com slash FP Insider. So James, the two groups that we hear discussed most often when it comes to coronavirus risk are older adults and people with underlying health conditions, both of whom the CDC has advised to stay at home as much as possible if there's an outbreak in their community. But the more you look at just the fabric of our society, there's just so many people who could be at real risk of either getting the virus or if they get it, it just could be devastating for them. Both Health wise and financially.
0: Yes, and a lot of people who are vulnerable, even outside of the epidemic itself, but to the knock on effects. People who are out of place, you know, who are in the wrong country, or who don't have proper paperwork, who can't access the kind of shelter needed. Mm. So, home, you know, I mean, obviously, I think homeless people in particular, but also just people who have been sent home unexpectedly say from university into what may not be great family situations or even who were you know literally in the middle of moving when this hit and a lot of their well-being has depended upon the generosity of others but you've also got these situations in which you have people who have conditions that would not be particularly bad at normal times but which are badly exacerbated by pandemic conditions
1: I mean, it's even just the little things like, you know, when, when we were going into the office, I'd once a week try and pick up a copy of Street Sense, the DC uh, newspaper sold by vendors experiencing homelessness, and their sales must have just dried up overnight now that everybody's working from home.
0: Exactly. And, uh, and you know, as the economy as a whole plunges into depression, I think that those impacts are always going to pummel the poor, the very poor, the worst. Mm-hmm. Um those margins of existence that were already thin. And when we look at efforts like, uh, you know, sending every American checks, you know, you get to... There are a lot of unbanked people in this country. There are a lot of people who will find that difficult to access and getting out and reaching them is going to be tough. But then you also have folks, you know, like I, I have a friend in hospital at the moment with severe health conditions who's basically being turfed out in order to create room for ICU beds that uh, host the expected victims of the pandemic.
1: Wow, yeah. I think a pandemic is a really interesting kind of thought challenge, particularly for an administration like this one, because whatever your personal politics are towards immigrants or prisoners, people experiencing homelessness, the thing about a pandemic is that if these people are at risk and aren't properly taken care of, We're all at risk. So, you know, people have to set their politics aside on this one and make sure that everybody is taken care of absolutely regardless of their status.
0: Yeah, no atheists in foxholes and no individualists in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, And I I think, yeah, you've suddenly seen America almost becoming aware of these groups like prisoners, which are normally incredibly neglected, Mm. where I don't know if you saw in Arizona, for instance, prisoners until the pandemic hit were made to pay have soap to wash with
1: that's amazing
0: so the prison authorities were issuing this notice that from now on they're giving people free soap and i think those of us who weren't sort of following prison conditions there that closely like what wait you weren't giving them free soap before mm. um and uh, i think there may be this new awareness of the shared vulnerability of society and you know, we're really not at the point where we can talk about anything positive coming out of this disaster, because we're staring at the bodies set to pile up. But uh, you know, that se- I think you do get in disasters that sense of compassion, that sense of reaching out, both by necessity and hopefully just because of empathy, of realizing that these other people are there. Yeah. I think that it's also made us just much more aware, as, as Michael Miller was saying last week when we interviewed him on Friday that our problems can't be separated from the rest of the world. And that, you know, the, the cough developed by a street vendor in Wuhan may be the thing that closes down the American economy four months later.
1: Yeah. So on Tuesday, I spoke over Skype with Camille Mackler, an immigration attorney and fellow at the Truman National Security Project. Camille spearheaded a letter to the Department of Justice, which was signed by dozens of immigration attorneys and advocates, calling on the department to protect the health and well-being of people attending New York's crowded immigration courts in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. Here's our conversation. So, Camille, thanks for joining us. Um, You spearheaded a letter to the DOJ calling on them to put in place measures that will protect immigration courts and people to interact with them during the coronavirus outbreak. So first of all, just describe to me what is an immigration courtroom like?
2: I think the best way I have of describing an immigration courtroom is just picture a New York City subway Car in normal times at rush hour traffic. I mean, it's it's utter chaos. Um, it's they're packed. they you know people stand shoulder to shoulder. They they sit on top of each other, um, and the main the main reason why is that they try to get in as many people as possible. If you don't show up, you will be ordered deported simply by virtue of your absence. Um, The courtrooms don't have equipment to let people know what, you know, the next case to be called is going to be on the outside. So you have to be physically present in the courtroom to hear whether your case is going to be called or not. So people are just basically on top of each other. You know, children are there because a lot of times they're part of the case or um, they're, they're the only person in the case or they, uh, the individuals don't have childcare options so it's it's a pretty loud crowded scene which is obviously everything you want to avoid right now and then if you've got the lawyers you've got the interpreters you've got the court staff you've got the judges it's it's very messy
1: and what if somebody is sick coronavirus or not and they can't turn up to their immigration hearing what happens then
2: if they don't come and they didn't ask and obtain permission to reschedule the case ahead of time, they will be ordered deported. Um, if they were sick to the point that they really couldn't travel, for example, they were at a hospital requiring medical treatment, they might be able to ask for the for their deportation order to be vacated after the fact, but they'd have to make that request to a judge and, and prove that. And, and one thing that you know, I think a lot of people don't actually realize is that you're not entitled to a Lawyer in immigration. You have a right to one if you can find one, but the government isn't going to provide one, even if you can't afford one. So you either have to be able to pay for one, or you have to be able to find a nonprofit that has the capacity to take on your case for uh, a low, or a reduced fee or no fee, or you have to go through this in- entire legal process on your own. So
1: everything that we're being told right now about, you know, if you have if you have a cough, if you have a fever. You know, stay at home, stay away from people, if somebody doesn't come to their hearing because they're like, well, I'm following the CDC's advice right now, that might not necessarily fly with the judge.
2: Exactly. Um, and I mean, it's very dramatic. I, I've spoken to multiple lawyers who've you know spoken to people who have um, who may be young but have underlying health conditions or who may be you know at higher risk as per the CDC and other health experts who feel like they have no other choice but to go to court yet everybody is being forced to show up in court right now, um, or else somebody could be ordered deported simply because they weren't there.
1: Right. I didn't even think of that. like the lawyers themselves.
2: Yeah, I was speaking to a lawyer the other day who has asthma. But on the other hand, she felt that she couldn't not be there for her client because obviously, you know, she's she's got her ethical duties to her clients. But also, you know, as as a person, she doesn't want to put somebody else, a client of hers in that situation of going to court alone either. So this
1: bureaucratic limbo that the people are held in when they're going through immigration hearing process, I mean, it sounds like it's a huge vulnerability in the response to the pandemic in trying to stem the spread of the coronavirus.
2: These places are breeding grounds for this incredibly contagious disease from everything that we're being told. And, you know, because this administration has this this incredibly aggressively Mm anti-immigrant policy standpoint, it seems that they're willing to sacrifice the public health over, over these policies and it's, is devastating because again, it's not just, you know, the immigrants. I mean, that alone should be enough to convince anyone, but, mm-hmm. but beyond that, it's everybody else who comes into contact. And then, you know, I, I, I live and work in New York city. And so how do you get to the court? You get on a New York city subway. Right. And, and then you go into a store and then immigrants often live in, in crowded household situations and there's all the families there. And, and they also tend to occupy the jobs, you know, that, that don't stop. And so yeah. it's, it's, very devastating.
1: And I imagine that some of the fallout from this is going to land hardest on immigrant communities and on undocumented people in the U.S. I mean, what are you hearing from people right now, you know, beyond the immediate uh, fear of the virus itself, but just, you know, the economic impact, the loss of jobs, the loss of work hours, you know, some people maybe not having proper health care or any health care at all. You know, what are you hearing from from immigrants right now?
2: Yeah, I think the access to healthcare is actually one of our top concerns right now,
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: as well as as the closing of schools, certainly in New York. From the healthcare perspective, you know, we um, a lot of immigrants don't have healthcare, and even though the administration finally, after a lot of pushing from advocates, announced, I, I believe yesterday or the day before, that they will. Not consider any assistance that immigrants receive to combat the virus to count against them in public charge determinations. The fact that they published a rule that went into effect not even a month ago now that um, puts immigrants who receive public benefits, including benefits like Medicaid, at much higher risk of being found what's called a public charge, which can lead to Denial of green cards applications and deportation in some limited instances is actually creating a lot of fear and a lot of concern and is dissuading immigrants from going and accessing health care because they're going to be afraid that by the very fact that they're accepting public health benefits or public health assistance, that they will be putting themselves at risk for deportation um, or at risk of denial of applications down the road. So that is, is a major concern um, and and on top of that, you know, the schools closing—that the schools provide a lot of job, uh, sorry, of food security mm-hmm. for immigrant families who are often, you know, low wage earners, um, and also childcare, right? When when you have individuals who can't take days off of work and who can't work from home, like you said. But the loss of incomes—I mean, the, a lot of the small businesses, you know, the small restaurants, the small, yeah. um, the small sort of businesses, dry cleaners, um, you know newspaper delivery and home health aides are often, in New York City especially, are often jobs held by immigrants because yeah. they can't find anybody else to fill those jobs. And so these are all jobs, the economic impact, you know, as those jobs go away, nannying, nail salon workers, um, car washers, all these things, that they're, they're not going to be able to benefit from any sort of relief packages. They're not going to be able to, be, um, to benefit from unemployment or things like that. And so the economic impact um, is going to be Dreadful, um, and these are you know communities that are very often poor. We estimate in New York that fifty-two percent of undocumented immigrants live be- below the federal poverty guidelines, and that number is just going to shoot up.
1: And the federal poverty line in New York, if I remember correctly, is itself extremely low.
2: It's less than twenty thousand for a family of two. Um, it's it's insanely low for for a place like New York compared to the cost of living. Yeah. That was Camille
1: Mackler, an immigration attorney and fellow at the Truman National Security Project, speaking over Skype.
0: And you know, this isn't just an American problem. The British Home Office has always been notorious in its bureaucracy, its near-Stalinism in the way that it treats people. Mm -hmm. Even before the pandemic, we saw the Windrush scandal, where hundreds of people with the right to live in Britain were illegally deported by the Home Office. And amid the crisis, there's been almost no adaptation yet or understanding of these needs. So I saw this thread from a British lawyer on Twitter, and they were describing how their elderly client, 80 years old, was effectively being deported to Ukraine. And the Home Office was telling this client to leave with no planes. And when the lawyer got in touch, they were told that the client should try at 80 years old to make their way by land transport across Europe in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of closed borders. I mean, it's an insane and an inhuman system that and shutting these things down needs to be a priority.
1: Right, I saw that because Ukraine has closed its airspace to all flights, right? And they were saying, doesn't matter, you, get your client back.
0: And I think Poland, which, you know, you, you have to get through as past invaders have discovered to get to Ukraine, has closed its land borders even.
1: That's insane. And meanwhile, of course, the UK government, like like in the United States, is encouraging, you know, older people to stay at home. But you know, if you're an asylum seeker, you know, tough luck as far as the Home Office is concerned.
0: Rand Paul, the senator, referred to illegal immigrants as non-persons on the Senate floor.
1: Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us how the pandemic is affecting you wherever you are in the world. Send in your questions to face at farmpolicy.com or send your questions as an audio recording using your voice recorder app. And don't forget to check out our coronavirus coverage over at farmpolicy.com where we have some of the world's leading experts breaking down what's happening and what could come next. That's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon.
0: And I'm James Palmer.
1: Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands.
0: And don't touch your face.